Welcome to the Womensy News Indigenous Women Speak Out series, a series that tells of the originative work and lives of female leaders of Indigenous and First Nation communities in both the U.S. and Canada to spread light on their call for environmental advocacy, cultural preservation, and improving health and human services. These women have a uniquely valued place in Indigenous cultures that can help raise respect for women's special wisdom throughout the world. Join us. Hello, everyone. My name is Mary Kim Titla. I'm a member of the San Carlos Apache Tribe. I'm also the Executive Director for United National Indian Tribal Youth. I'd like to introduce myself in my language, the Apache language. She, Mary Kim Titla Gunze, Tendo Jage and Shli, Gayanchin Bonchi. And I just told you that I am from the Tendo Jage clan, which is on my maternal side. And I'm Gayanchin Bonchi, which is on my father's side, the paternal side, which is from the Camp Verde Band of Apaches. I'm very happy to be joining you and honored to be interviewing our guest. This is Madonna Thunderhawk, and I'm going to let her introduce herself. Hi, Madonna. Hello. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm very honored to be here. Um, yeah, I'm an elder from the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe in South Dakota, north central area of the state. And um, yeah, this is my home. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on this podcast. I am super excited to be talking to you because to be quite honest, Madonna, you are a superstar in my opinion. And uh, you are truly a warrior woman. I think you are really somebody uh, that people should know. And so we're going to jump right in and talk about a lot of the work that you've been involved in since the 1960s. And so why don't we just start with the American Indian movement, because you were a leader in that movement. So can you tell me a little bit about that and the occupation of Alcatraz? Okay, yeah, you know, the occupation of Alcatraz happened before uh, my involvement with the American Indian Movement. We had been out in the Bay Area on relocation and stuff, so we're kind of familiar with what was going on. And then relatives of mine, my uncle and, and several others, in 1964, they staked claim to Alcatraz Island when the federal government shut down the prison. And just, it was symbolic, you know, they state claim to it. And they said, according to our treaty provisions, any federal land that's, uh, you know, that's, um, you know, decomm decommissioned or not used should revert back to the original, you know, indigenous uh, landowners. That, so that that was the, the um, what happened then in 64. So then uh, a few years later is when the actual occupation of Alcatraz took place in 69. So, uh, but by that time I had come back home. I was back home by then. And uh, we were working on the Black Hills issue, the uranium mining that was planned and uh, other mining, of course the gold mining that was going on. And the whole issue of the taking of the Black Hills when Alcatraz Island happened while we were at, <laughs> At the occupation on, on Mount Rushmore, met with John Trudell, and he had come from Alcatraz. And he asked if uh, we would come, myself and uh, a couple other women, if we would come and help 
establish, you know, community there on the island for those that were permanent residents. So that's how I got to Alcatraz. Well, thank you for that background. I appreciate it. You know, there uh, has been quite a few events over the years that you have been involved with, and the occupation of Alcatraz was just one of them. I believe you were part of the relocation program. Is that right? Oh, yeah. We all were in those days. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a problem. It was, you know, a program or a project of the federal government. It was an amazing for young people, you know, go to the big city, go out, you know see the rest of the country and you know they're just you're just gonna it's just gonna be a wonderful thing well you've been a part of native american resistance so to speak since those early years and i know that history books have not been kind to native americans and there's probably uh, in terms of historical context a lot of young people who really don't know much about that period of time do you find that to be true oh yeah Definitely. It's, a, it's just a, but that's, I guess it's, that's just a process, you know, of our people, especially, you know, I can only speak for my area, you know, where I'm from and stuff, but because we are colonized, we still have that mentality, you know, of, I don't know, white is right. <laughs> a lot of people won't admit that, but here we had a chance with our tribal colleges to just turn this thing upside down and we haven't. Because what, we're waiting for someone else to say, well, go ahead and write your own history. What? You know, curriculum is so important. And there's individually, I, I, you know, I know there's individual Indian organizations, educational organizations around the country that are doing just that. But it's not on a consistent basis nationwide. You know, even in South Dakota here, we don't have a standard curriculum for Indian studies, for example. And Indian studies, that isn't, shouldn't even be Indian studies. It should just be flat, the curriculum, you know, and that our history should be the curriculum. But it's not. So we have a long way to go yet, you know. It isn't because of the lack of trying, I don't think, because we are who we are and most of us are land-based and that we have so many issues and so many crises going on continually. How do you prioritize Save the children, save the education, save the water, save the land. It's really difficult. And I've seen that over the decades. I've seen that. We're constantly in crisis. It's, it's difficult to prioritize, in other words. Well, I know you've been very busy all these years. And your uh, activism, I know that the word activist is, is an overused word, but your work has touched on many topics related to, of course, the environment, land, and water. But getting back to the topic of education, you decided that a government-run school wasn't always the best thing for Native children. So you started a survivor school. Can you talk about that? Well, you know, at that time, that was in the early 70s. And it was a time when there was so many, uh, you know, things going on. We were just constantly on the move. The American Indian movement, the key word was movement. Uh, we had a core group of our people that traveled. They wanted us on every reservation. They wanted us to come and they wanted to tell us their story, all, you know, what was going on. And so we were just constantly on the move. And I had my children with me. 
And well, we all, we were a movement of, of families, you know, that we were all doing that. It wasn't just, you know, select view. We were all, that's how it was. And my son said, mom, I think, I, you know, we should have our own school. He said, I don't want to go to the school, you know, off the reservation. I don't want to go to the school on the reservation because we're just going to end up in fights. You know, people fighting for, you know, we have long hair and, you know, we're, we're aim and that type of thing. So I looked around and there was a lot of families that were indicted, you know, because of wounded knee. They had charges. And so there were children that would come to the legal office and then we had a what we called an aim house where people could sleep and stay there while they were waiting for their hearings or their court hearing so there was a lot of children around i realized oh well yeah you know okay what should we do so we started it wasn't really a school it was more like a group home and we started basically i mean i i wasn't into education i'm not you know educator i i didn't know you know i just we just kind of played it by ear and we, and we took our direction from the children. It just grew on us, you know, pretty soon we had to, a whole lot of kids. And so we had a chance to, to develop curriculum. We had a chance to actually sit down and think about it and, and say, you know, hey, this is, this is an opportunity. You know, let's, let's do this, you know. But that was a sign of the times then, that, that type, we could never do that again. Because our young people at the, of all ages, from practically toddlers up to, you know, young adults, 19, 20-year-olds, most of them were bilingual. English was their second language. But it's totally different now. It's not like that. English is everybody's first language. So there's a lot of differences, some subtle and some major, you know. We didn't have the uh, dysfunction in communities like we have nowadays. We didn't have the, the terrible drug you know, scourge that's going on nowadays. You know, we didn't have those kinds of social ills, you know. I mean, there was some going on, of course, but, you know, it wasn't so prominent. But, yeah, that's what we did. We, 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 we had our chance to, to not only teach but learn our own. We learned right along with them. We, you know, what, for example, you know, what, what's in your world? What, what, what you know, in those days, hey, food stamps, what is that? What does that mean? Well, let's go find out. So we went and researched what that was. You know, we wanted what was real in these kids' world, their life, their their lifestyle. What, what was all of that about? What does it all mean? So we did things like that. You know, and when people we knew that they had a court date, we went to court. So the kids learned that. There's more to just the police chase you around or, or, or arrest people because they're drunk. You know, there's more to this legal system than we know. So we had to find out so that these children would know, here's what you're going to be faced with as you get older and you're an adult. You know, we're feeding this, this system. We're feeding the prison system. We've, it's got to stop or at least slow it down, you know. So that's what we taught our young people. So the school, it sounds to me like it was amazing. And there was a lot of uh, culturally relevant teachings. It sounds like you talked about uh, things like sovereignty uh, and, and had real discussions about real tribal issues. Oh, yeah. And the first thing they did was learn the 1868 treaty inside and out. That was one of the you know requirements you had to do for the older ones. And then they... They helped the younger ones and taught them. I 
understand that you've long been an advocate for Native children. I know that you're uh, a mother, you mentioned that, a grandmother, and now I believe a great-grandmother, correct? Yes, yes. Five great-granddaughters. That's amazing. Congratulations. So this advocacy work is super important to you. And when you were talking about, you know, the foster care system, the work that you're doing now is falls right in line with an organization and their work. And what I'm talking about is the Simply Smiles project and the Children's Village. So you... You got to know this group and now tell us what's happening on the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation. Oh, man, it's just I just can't. I'm so happy that I lived long enough to see it. I never thought it it could or would happen. You know, Uh, we got to talking with them, with this group. They had started coming to our reservation, uh, to a community right down the road here. And they come every summer and all they would do was have day camp. And that's all they did. Their only agenda was to have fun and activities with the children. No religion, no anything else. You know, just pure, we're here to, you know, have activities and, and, and fun. We got acquainted with them. Uh, my daughter actually did. She's a nutritionist and she's into traditional foods and organic gardening and that type of thing. So she saw that they were, you know, growing food there. and stuff. So she got acquainted with them. So then she started talking with them and then they came over to visit us, came over to my house and we started talking about child welfare issues. And man, and you know, it was just amazing because they said, well, you know, what, what do you think we're willing to help? What do you think, you know, we can do? What, you know, what? So I said, are you kidding? Sit down, (laughs) sit down and listen. So uh, several other grandmothers, we got to, could visit with them and we said we got to have some kind of a something that's set up so that our kids will not have to leave the reservation for foster care that's where you know that that's we've got to try to put a stop to that there are foster care on the reservation but there's not enough and they're overwhelmed the ones they do have there isn't a lot so what we said was we started talking and just thinking about it and we said what if we had a children's village where we work directly with the tribal court and these children can come to our village and they can stay there and that'll always be their home. They can go home when it's time if they want to, but they can always come back. They never age out so that they won't have to leave the reservation. They won't have to go to a non-native foster home and be put on meds to keep them docile you know so they won't run away that that's the thing that happens when they our children get into the system they dope them up so they won't run away they won't run home so we're hoping that right now and then covid happened just when we got going covid happened but we went ahead anyway we've got two homes built now and we're working on the third in a, a community, you know, building, I mean, for offices and therapy, you know, that type of thing. So we've got the two homes built and we're working on recruiting. Hopefully what we want, we want to do is to help recruit uh, young people or anybody, any family or person that wants to be a professional 
kinship parent, not just a glorified daycare. You know, we want professional and we want to help train them, you know, teach them so that they're permanent employees, so that these homes have have kinship parents rather than foster parents. The Indian Child Welfare Act, ICWA, as you know, became law in 1978. And 25 to 35% of all Native American children uh, at that time were being taken from their homes and 85% of them were placed outside their communities. But since the law's enactment, the number of Native children placed in non-Native homes fell to 56% of those removed from their families. So the work that you're doing and the work that others are doing to keep these children in their communities is making a difference. And you can see the, the numbers are changing. And, and that's the goal. Oh, yes. It's, it's a long road, but, you know, it's hard work, but it's got to be done. That's our future. Absolutely. You know, and you personally know like to be taken from your home and to be placed in a boarding school. I understand that you and your sister, I think, were placed in a boarding school. Uh-huh. What was that experience? Well, it was just common, a common uh, occurrence back when I was, this was right after World War II. This is in 1946. We were, a bus pulled up and my grandmother took my, walked with my sister and I, and we got on the bus and we went and we had no idea. We had no idea. And we got there and it was traumatizing for everybody. But, you know, you're little and you don't know. I mean, we didn't know, but there was, it was like we were all, it was a whole herd of us, you know. We got off the bus and they, they lined us up. Thing, and everybody was dead quiet. There was no crying. There was no fussing. There was nothing. You were just in that, that, that. After that, that's how it was. You were just, nobody talked. Nobody did anything. And we had, we eventually developed our own sign language, you know. But that's another story. But they kept us first graders, okay. We kept us separate from the second graders and the third graders and, and anybody else because you stayed in the first grade until you learned English. Mm. So they didn't want you communicating with anybody else because in the second grade, you, you knew enough English to get by, but you could still talk, talk Indian to your sister or your brother. So they kept you separated. So, but the thing was, I knew English. My grandmother my maternal grandmother she i remember her saying when i was a little girl she said it's a white man's world and my grandchildren aren't going to be handicapped they're going to know english it was was the other way around for me i had a working knowledge of of lakota could speak i mean i couldn't speak it fluently but i had a working you know knowledge of it i could but english i knew so I think it started for me then because I knew what was going on and I told everybody. And I was always kind of like, you know, okay, guys, you know, listen up. <laughs> Here's what's going to happen, you know. So I always, it, it, I believe it kind of started then to be kind of like, I don't know, mother hand, you know. <laughs> it, 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 it was experience, but I think because there's strength in numbers, 
I think the the trauma was there, but it was um it was kind of like well, we're all in the same boat, you know. But my mother was working in the war effort, you know. So she was still working in sh- in the shipyards in California while we were in the boarding school that first year. But when she came back, she became the uh, she, the dormitory attendant for that boarding school. So then we were, you know, we still were there, but we were with her. But my mother was raised in the boarding school system in the 30s. So she was in grade school when the when our people were still under the war department. So when, when she went to school, in grade school, she wore uniforms. And they were, it was like military. And if they ran away or if they did anything wrong, they were flogged. She watched. They made all the children watch them when they flogged those that tried to run away. So when she got into high school, then they had the Indian Reorganization Act of 1935. So that's when she was in high school. Then it was an about change. It just did a, you know, turnaround. And that's where she learned to do things like play tennis things like that after, you know, the 30s. But she had been in boarding school her whole life. So she taught us. So when I went to boarding school, it wasn't that different from home because my mother was strict. We cleaned. And we cleaned on our hands and knees. It wasn't clean unless you scrubbed it, you know. And that was my mother because she was raised that way. She had no parenting skills, you know. And that's what's handed down generation to generation. And so it was really hard for me, you know, I tried to to be uh, different, you know, than, than not do that and stuff, but I was strict with my kids, you know. And, and, and now my daughters, she broke that cycle, you know, she's, my, my, my kids are more loving with their children. I'm so glad that was, you know, but that, that, that's, that's our history, you know, that, that's how we were, what was done to us as, as a people. How do you feel the repatriation and all of the stories that we're seeing now, the mass graves at residential schools and boarding schools, many of these uh, children are returning home. How does that affect you? Personally, I can only speak for for myself, but personally, you know, it's right away for me, it was anger. Because we know this, we know this all all along. It was handed down to us. Even the schools here in South Dakota, we know the stories that we heard when we were in school. And then what we heard later of children that died and children that just disappeared. But nothing was ever done. The issue was never brought up. By who? Tribal council? By the Catholic school? By who? You know? So those kinds of, um, the, the issue to me was just like, well, we've always known it was there. We always know, we, we knew that, we know that. And to me, you know, I'm not like, oh, you know, my, my first reaction was not sadness or anything, it was anger. You know, it's about time, it took you this long you know, and it had to happen in Canada before it happened here, the cover-up, you know, and what 
these are Catholic schools, most of them, where we haven't heard a, heard a word, anything from anybody from the Vatican or anywhere, anywhere else. You know, and then the residential schools that were with the government, you know, nothing there yet. Nothing, nothing said. Focus is, oh, well, you know, just, oh, well, how sad. And, oh, they found the graves and stuff. But now what? You know, now what? The international attention it received was something to see. Uh, That's how I kept tabs on it by just not only the the news uh, channels, because, you know, what they did was very limited, but the social media aspect of it, there was something daily that was shared. And to me, the social media, people who were recording and going live, that was exciting to see. And I'm sure that with technology and just how that's evolved over time, something you didn't have back in the 60s. So there there was something different this time around with with social media. Oh, it was amazing. I just, I loved it. Oh my gosh. We were camped up on the hill, the only hill that was there, you know, in the camp and they called it Facebook Hill because that's where you had to go and hold your phone up, you know, to get coverage. So everybody would go up on the hill to do that, you know, and that's where the the uh, media tent was and that's where the legal tent was. So anybody that came in had to come right by our camp, you know, so we got to meet and greet everybody. And we were elders, you know, so we let everybody know that we're here to support. So we didn't need to be in on down on the microphone in the, you know, we didn't need to be, you know, doing that type of thing. We needed to just be visible and let people know that we, you know, were supporting. But and then if anybody asked for advice or wanted to, like sometimes the legal, you know, people would come over, you know, and we'd go over and, you know, meet with them for advice and things like that. Yeah, it was it was such an amazing, amazing happening. You know, it was just it was just a international phenomenon. It certainly was. I'm going to fast forward now to earlier this year. And I am curious as your first reaction when you heard that Deb Holland from New Mexico was nominated to the Secretary of the Interior, and then that whole process. Did you ever think in your lifetime that you would live to see such a thing? No, no, I didn't. And, you know, I'm old school. I'm so skeptical, you know, that that when she was nominated, I thought, oh, the fight's on, the resistance, you know. I figured it was going to come from everybody, you know. Here she is, beautiful, native woman with her brains. But, of course, they're going to let her get in there, you know. Because everything we've ever had to do has been a major battle, a major fight. You know, we've had to just settle for getting our foot in the door and then keep pushing and pushing, you know. So when she was, you know, appointed, I was just, I was, I was just, I couldn't quit smiling. I thought I lived to see it. Ah, I was so happy. And I thought of my grandma, thought of my mom. Just amazing. 
if anyone is watching and they want to learn more about Madonna Thunderhawk, all you have to do is Google her name and all sorts of things pop up. Lifetime worth of work. And it's very uh, commendable, Madonna. Uh, I am amazed at all the things that you've accomplished and that you've done and you're still at it. I don't know if you want to share your age, but... <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm 81 and I'm proud of it. I'm still here. I mean, that's this is a this is what 81 does, you know. This is what our ancestors did. You know, 81 was, you know, to them there was still, you know, things to do, you know, life to live. So, yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> Keep up the great work. Thank you so much for sharing your insight, sharing your advice. And for, again, being that advocate, being on the front lines for all these Native causes, I appreciate you. Thank you. In Apache, we say ahia, a thank you. Thank you. Ahia, a shon. Thank you. Thank you for joining this edition of the Women's E-News Indigenous Women Speak Out series. I'm Dr. Lori Sokol, Executive Director of Women's E-News. To learn more, please visit us at womensynews.org and follow us at Women's News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please subscribe to this podcast.